0: In all seriousness, wow, we are, we are packed in, and it's such a delight to open the Word of God together. We're going to get to our text in just a moment, but before we do, I want to set the stage. We're going to be talking about the God who adopts sinners this morning. That's the, the focus of our time together this morning. Before I do, let me give you just a few statistics on the importance of earthly fathers. We're going to be talking about a heavenly father, but before I do, let's just set the stage. First, children in father-absent homes are almost four times more likely to be poor. The U.S. Department of Health and states, fatherless children are at a dramatically greater risk of drug and alcohol abuse. Children of single-parent homes are more than twice as likely to commit suicide. Children born to single mothers show higher levels of aggressive behavior than children born to married mothers. Living in a single household is equivalent to experiencing 5.25 partnership transitions. 71% of high school dropouts are fatherless. In earthly terms, the data is very clear. We desperately need fathers. Every single person, boy or girl, man and woman alike, needs An earthly father. It is, I do not exaggerate, the greatest need of the age. It is absolutely vital that a child have a father. And God has called fathers in the context of the home to lead the home, though. And so when there is not a father, desperately need both, but when there is not a father, there is so much of God's design for the family and for children and for the flourishing of human beings that just drops out right off the bat. In earthly terms, we need fathers desperately. But here's the remarkable truth. This pales in extremity compared to our desperate need, our much, 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 much greater need, truly an infinite need, an eternal need, for a heavenly father. That is by a factor that cannot be measured. The greater need of every single person who lives. We may not be able to rebuild a ship with an earthly father. For some of us that may in fact not even be feasible. Our earthly father could have died, could have walked away, could be out of contact, we might not know their name. I'm sure in a group this size, that obtains for some of us, that applies. <clears throat> and yet what we need to know is that whatever God has in store for us, and that's a, that's a real pain, there's real pain there that um, we have compassion for as Christians. Whatever the case with our earthly father, all of us, every single person can know the heavenly father. That's the good news and that is tremendously good news. Things with your earthly father may be touch and go, may be irreconcilable. I don't know, but I know this, and I am here to proclaim it to you. You can know the heavenly father. That's what Romans 8, 12 through 17 shows us. Turn there with me, if you would please, this morning. Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. Whatever the case with our earthly father, our heavenly father, Is not far from each one of us the father I mean who has created us but we need something more than a father who creates we need a father who saves us that's our much greater need Romans 8 verse 12 so then brothers Paul writes we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh for if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Father, what wondrous truths are here waiting to be harvested. I pray that whatever our earthly situation is with our family, not just our Father, but with our family, I pray that whatever trials and challenges we are facing this very morning in 2022, that you will lift up our head this morning, that you will enable us to see the glorious truth that is breaking out like the sun in the morning, and that you will help us take tremendous comfort and hope from the truth that in Christ, we have a Father. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen. We're going to see just four truths this morning about our life as adopted children, as Christians this morning four truths. Our first truth is found in verses 12 and 13. We have been called, we Christians have been called out of fleshliness and fearfulness. We Christians have been called out of fleshliness and fearfulness. That's what we see in verses 12 uh, and following. We see that a Christian, verse 12a, is quite simply a debtor. So then, brothers, Paul writes uh, to the Roman church about 2,000 years ago, we are debtors. This is fundamentally the identity of the Christian. The identity of the Christian is very different from a worldly identity, including an identity that's being taught to generations all over the place. The rising generations are not being taught that they are debtors. They are being taught that they are victims. And the biblical mindset and the biblical mentality of the Christian is that you are not fundamentally a victim. There may have been bad things done to you. There may have been trials you've gone through and things you have suffered, but your identity as a Christian is not first and foremost that of victim. It is first and foremost that of debtor. You are a debtor to God. Right off the bat, the word of God goes against the spirit of the age as it does over and over and over again. We're not a debtor to the flesh such that we should live according to the flesh. End of verse 12 there. The Greek phrase is to katasarka, according to the flesh. It's a, it's a whole way of being that Paul has in mind here. When someone is an unbeliever. It's not just in the apostolic mind, in Paul's mind, they shouldn't do, you know, occasionally there's something you might have to kind of half apologize for. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, but your feelings ended up getting hurt, you know, where you kind of apologize, but don't really apologize. I call that a Hollywood apology, by the way. (laughs) That's not what the state of the unbeliever is. The unbeliever lives katasarka, according to the flesh. There's an order. There's a whole way of life. There's a whole way of being human that we naturally all go toward. It's living according to our flesh, which basically just means living according to your sinful impulses and desires. And here again, right off the bat, with a book that people say is irrelevant and outmoded. We could not have a more relevant word from the Apostle Paul. Your natural desires, passions, inclinations, thoughts are not many of them, always at least. They are according to sin. They don't demand affirmation from fellow believers. They certainly don't demand affirmation from the world. Those fleshly instincts that you have and I have, demand repentance. We all naturally live in different ways. It manifests itself differently. According to the flesh. Some people have a raging temper. Some people have a kind of passive-aggressive temper. Some people, they're angry, and everybody within a city block knows it. Some people would never know if that person was angry, except it comes out in little drips and drabs, And, and we have angry hearts, all of us in some form. That's just one expression. We all are good at living according to the flesh. Nobody trains anybody else in it. I have three children, as was mentioned. I love my children dearly. They're precious children. But I did not have to train them in living katasarka. Naturally to you. Just like it will come naturally to those cute kids and cute grandkids you may have. There is a way of living that is natural to man. And our society and our culture is saying, affirm it. Affirm your flesh. And the church says, Put your flesh to death. Put your anger to death, your sinful anger. Uh, Put your uh, sinful tongue to death. Put your lusts to death. Don't lean into those things. Crucify those things. We are debtors as Christians, not to the flesh. Paul is saying, flesh has given us nothing. Flesh hasn't given us any good thing. All the flesh has done, all our sinful nature has done is take, take, take over and over again, destroy us piece by piece by piece, hour by hour by hour, day by day by day. But in the grace of God, we are debtors. The flesh hasn't given us anything good, but God, as we will see in this passage, has given us every good thing in His Son. If you live, verse 13, according to the flesh, You will die. Those are the stakes. Is it not feeling more and more and more countercultural to be a Christian in this day and age? Friends, we're walking into the teeth of the culture. This is like the first century all over again. The good news is Christians have been here before. We are not saying to fellow sinners, if you you live according to the flesh, it's all going to go great for you. We are, that's what the culture says. We say, if you live according to the flesh with the Apostle Paul, you will die. You will not only die in this life, you will die eternally. You will drink the wrath of God for all eternal water, and you will never stop. This is a strong word in our time. It is only a biblical word. It's a warning. The Bible is many things. The Bible is tremendously comforting, as we're going to see for the Christian, but the Bible is a warning book. It is a ringing bell, urging sinners to run away from hell and run toward heaven. And the the pathway is cut. It has been hewn already. Second half of verse 13. If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you keep living, Katasarka, you're going to die. You're going to die eternally. You're going to be judged. But there's another way. There's a U-turn you can take. It's the spirit's U-turn. If you will Christ, if you will know Christ as your savior and repent of all your sins, then you will have power to put to death the deeds of the body, the sins that come naturally to you they will be overcome you will have power your marriage will have significant horsepower in it where it has been weak and faltered and perhaps it's even taped together and barely hanging by a thread if you will know Christ then it it will live your marriage itself will live your relations with your children perhaps they are fractured and have frayed if if you will live by the spirit and put to death your sin God's grace will flow into that relationship. There is such hope that is to be found in the Spirit. And, but the call, the pathway to hope, is the way of death. It is not the way of affirming the flesh. It, it is the way of putting to death the flesh. Is the way to live. The Spirit helps you in this. This is tremendously encouraging. Paul is teaching us here in verse 13 that we don't, uh, in ourselves, have the resources necessary to put to death the deeds of the body. But when we become a Christian, and when the Spirit indwells every last believer, we do have power. Your flesh is outmatched. God is stronger than your sin. Do you understand this? God is stronger than your sin. Perhaps one reason why, if you are a believer, you're experiencing ongoing defeat and sadness and depression. One reason is that you are not claiming the power of the Spirit in your life. You're trying to do this in your own strength. When God expects you to live the Christian life in your own strength, you and I can only do this by the Spirit. The Spirit is not a crutch for especially weak Christians. The Spirit is the gift of God indwelling us, living inside us, so that we can glorify God and put to death sin. Indicating that you can't put sin to death in a God-glorifying way outside of the Spirit. And when that is happening, you are living. <laughs> there is wind in your sails when you are opposing and attacking the flesh. Colossians 3 is another passage to go to. I won't go here, but if you want to double down on this theme and think it through and read about it as a family around the kitchen table later this week, you will hear the apostle as here saying, mortify the flesh, put to death your sin, which means put eye black under your eyes, put a bandana around your head, put a knife in your teeth, and go hunting down your sin. That's the approach to sin that you have. Now, that may have connected more with some guys than the ladies, but that is the approach, which I will admit, But at least for some, but that is the approach every Christian is supposed to have. Sin hunts us. We hunt sin. That's how this works. Sin is hunting you. Sin wants you. Sin wants to take you down. Sin wants your marriage destroyed. Sin wants your purity as a single man. Are single woman compromised? Sin wants anger and bitterness and conflict to be always swirling around a Christian home. Sin wants you to compromise your witness at work or at school or college or university or whatever it is. Sin is hunting you. Good news. The Spirit is hunting with you. The Spirit empowers you to put to death the deeds of the body. And this leads us to verse 14. That's how we live. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This is how you know that you're a Christian. According to this passage, there's different tests of the Christian faith to be found throughout the New Testament. Here in Romans 8, verse 14, you know that you are a son of God, you know that you are a Christian, if you are led, agontai, in the Greek, by the Spirit. This uh, Greek word is really actually helpful for us because it translates uh, more technically are being led all who are being led it's an ongoing reality for every christian and it's a passive reality actually it's the spirit leading you make it happen yourself spirituality of the kind that a lot of people in churches all across america just heard about from a pulpit uh, a lot of people all around the world are hearing basically that their salvation, their sanctification, their growth and godliness as a believer, it's in your hands. You make it happen. Well, listen, you have a serious role to play here. You absolutely do. We don't deny that. We affirm that. But fundamentally, you are not the one who leads you in the Christian faith. It is like you are led by the hand by the Holy Spirit. Not in an angry, come on, let's go kind of way. Get going, what's wrong with you? No, in a gracious, kind, patient, loving way. That's, you know the kindness of God. Man is not kind. God is infinitely kind. Loving kindness, as Pastor MacArthur just preached, such a powerful sermon. Loving kindness, chesed in the Hebrew, flows out of the heart of God. God is not a rock or a stone. God is a loving, personal God that you know. You know Him in relationship. And the Bible teaches us that kindness pours out of Him. God does not have one of those weird eyedroppers. I don't know about you, I'm not good with the eye drops. I'm not good with the eye drops, because you put your head back, I, and like if I'm, at, if I'm getting a contact lens check, you didn't know we were going here, did you? But if you get a, if you get a contact lens check, you know at some point you got to get the eyedropper. Do you remember the puff test, by the way? Anybody? Whoo! I'm, I'm glad to be alive, because I almost, I almost went to glory because of the puff test when I was like 12 years old. You know it's coming, and, and you're trying to keep your eye and then you get it wrong, and they got to do it again. Oh, just misery. I'm here to work some things out with you, okay? Anyway, you get a little drop, right, of the, of the contact lens solution or whatever it is, and, and then you're blinking madly. That is not the grace of God. Get your, little, get your little squeezy thing. There you go. There's your drop. One drop. One drop of hesed right there. That's all you get. That's your drop for the day. Oh, you didn't catch it? Too bad. You squandered it. No. No, that's not the kindness of God. That's not the love of God. That's not the grace of God. You're a sinner, Christian or unchristian. I'm a sinner. We've got real business to do with our sin. But then our sin, I mean, way bigger. And God pours out of his own character loving kindness to us. Such that, such that you and I are being Led by the Spirit of God. And so you say, well, what's the Spirit's leading? Is it a, for, for a lot of folks, it might be an audible voice that they think they hear, or it might be the ability to perform some kind of miracle or something like this. Or For most people uh, today, it's probably a kind of Jesus-calling private revelation that they would think of. That's when they know the Spirit is leading them, because there is a kind of audible voice that says, "Put on the striped socks this morning," or you know, uh, "Go this route instead of that route; you'll save ten minutes." That sort of thing. You need private revelation. The way, led by the Spirit, the way you know this is happening is you hate the flesh and you love the things of God. That's the Spirit's primary leading in every Christian's life. You hate the flesh. You start hating the flesh when you never have. You think to yourself, I don't wanna blow this this situation up. I don't want this conversation to escalate like it surely could. Um, I don't don't think I should really watch that on Netflix. I used to binge watch that series. I don't think I should watch that anymore. Um, I don't think, I don't know that I should go there and hang out with those folks. I wanna be a witness to them. But I don't think I can go and do that any longer because that's not good for me, and I'm participating in that not goodness with them. And thus, I'm actually participating in effectively down the slope even further. Those kind of instincts are what the New Testament is talking about when it means being led by the Spirit. It's that instinct in you, it's that soft uh, 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 inclination. That, that is just kind of playing upon your conscience, that, that says the kind of things that I am, I am saying. I don't mean says in an audible voice. I mean that kind of witness of the heart and the mind to you. That's how you know you're led by the Spirit. That, that's really encouraging. That's tremendously encouraging. You are not bound each day to try to put a finger in the wind and figure out you know, exactly what the will of God is for that particular day. God will lead you. God, all, God leads all of us providentially and wonderfully, even in miraculous ways. But fundamentally, the, the, the leading of the Spirit is an ordinary, step-by-step, hate-evil kind of leading, which actually frees us. It frees us. And this leads us into verse 15, all under this first truth. We did not receive, you did not receive, Paul writes, the spirit of slavery, To fall back into fear. Ah, what a word for 2022. (laughs) When we live in a fear-based society. This is a fear-based society. The fundamental approach to citizenship in this country and many others is fear. We have been living under the ministry of fear. Now they're starting the ministry of truth. We are actually living in an Orwell novel, by the way. That's a digression. But even before the ministry of truth, we've had the ministry of fear from every angle. There are things to be careful about, to be wise about. I'm not saying, you know, out of the overflow of this particular group class, go drive on the opposite side of the road, you know, when you leave here. We're not teaching that. We're not saying be foolhardy. You want to be wise as a Christian. And yet you just need to know at a broader level, fear is your enemy. Not the fear of God, but the the fear of man. The fear that comes from the flesh. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Paul writes to the Roman church. Do you know that it was not an easy thing to be a Christian in Rome almost 2,000 years ago? It was a hard thing. It was hard to be a Christian. It's, it's been hard to be a Christian most centuries of human existence. You stand against the world. You're swimming against the tide. It's not always fun. You don't always get a lot of approval. And one of the, one of the problematic aspects of living in a fallen world is that people all around us are terrified Well, we haven't been given a spirit of slavery to fear. We have been liberated from it. And that leads us to our second truth this morning. Our second truth about the father's adoption is this. We have been adopted as sons. Second, we have been adopted as sons. You see this in verse 15, let's read the whole verse. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have res- received, excuse me, the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay, so here's the deal. We are not supposed to it is a way that shows that our Christian faith is not as strong as it needs to be. We expect unbelievers to live in fear. Because their sins are not washed. They're, they're, they're not justified by faith. They are children of wrath. Ephesians 2.3 But that is not true of the believer. The believer is not gripped by the icy hand of fear. We feel fear. All of us do. It rises up in us. But what we do with our fear, like our sin, is we fight it. We don't embrace it. We don't make it our way of life. We put it to death. We confess it to God. We say, God, forgive me. Even if it's quiet. Even if it's just in your head. You confess your sin to God and you say, Father, forgive me. I'm slipping into anxiety and fear again for roughly the 27,000th time. Give me help. Give me strength. God loves prayers like that. That's not not you being a failure as a Christian. That's, That's the spirit of God. Working vibrant faith and repentance in you. If you are gripped by fear and anxiety at all times. I'm not here to throw stones at you. Fundamentally. We call sin what it is. But you need to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because in the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins are washed. And when God gives us faith in his son. We are justified in the courtroom of God. We are counted righteous. And now every minute we live is a minute we live uncondemned, free, and innocent. And that is the way to not live in anxiety, to have your sin dealt with, to have your guilt overcome, and then you are adopted. You you have received, verse 15b, second half of 15 that is, You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. You've been adopted. Yes, it's supposed to be sons. Because the idea here is that of the first century Greco-Roman world that the firstborn son would inherit everything. More on that to come. But the idea is that you haven't inherited a portion of what God could give you in His grace. You have inherited the kingdom. You didn't even know what was in the will. You showed up to the hearing. You thought you might be getting, I don't know, some of the furniture and maybe one of the old cars and potentially a a building in the back. Maybe some lumber thrown in. That's especially expensive today. You didn't know that when you went to the hearing for the estate, you were getting everything. You got everything that could be given. All of us did, just like a firstborn son. It turns out, as I wrestle with this mic, this mic and I, we've been fighting, okay, all weekend. I don't know, don't don't make any assumptions about my ears. I don't know if they're big, small, ornery. I digress, okay? We're gonna keep wrestling. We're gonna wrestle this out, like Jacob with the angel. (laughs) Fundamentally, you showed up to the hearing and you got it all. So, Christian, your life is not a life of misery, and lacking, and God not giving you what He really should have given you because He owes it to you. Your life is a life of the spirit of adoption as a son. You're the firstborn son. Meaning, it all, you've gotten all the grace of God. You've gotten all the forgiveness of God. You've gotten all the kindness of God. You've gotten all the love of God. No one can take it from you. People can show up even if you inherit all the estate. Somebody here has probably inherited a pretty significant estate in their lifetime. That can still be taken from you. There are loopholes. There are governments who are evil. You can have anything taken from you at any time in this life. What cannot be taken from you is the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God shown in the cross of Jesus Christ. No one can unsave you. No one can uncrucify the Son. No one can unresurrect the Son. It's happened. It's objective. It's done. It's truth. It's fact. The forces of evil hate it. He gnashes his teeth at the cross and the resurrection, which buy us back and give us eternal life. Satan hates these things because they're fact. It's not just some nice thought that we're all having in our heart where we all pretend that the Son of God died for us and was raised for us. No, it has happened. The work is finished. So whatever happens to you in your job, whatever happens to you in your community as a Christian, whatever happens to you in the context of your family, if it's—if there's some mess there, I, I I don't know what is coming for you in earthly terms, but I know that you are inheriting everything in Christ Jesus. It's not... Mm, barely good enough to be true for the Christian, it's honestly too good to be true. It's that way every single day. One one aspect here before we move on to our third truth, the miracle of forgiveness. It can be so hard to get forgiveness in this life, can it? You try, you try to make amends, you try to repair the relationship and sometimes it does not work. Sometimes there's sort of half-forgiveness, and then there's the resumption of old grievances, and it's rough, and it doesn't work out perfectly, and there's fractured stuff in this life. It's a rough world that we live in. But with God, there is perfect forgiveness. You always go to the well of grace, and you always draw up, not our little drop, you know, with the squishy thing, one drop, but you bring up buckets and you are forgiven anew. And friends, that is the greatest miracle there is for us sinners. That's the miracle of miracles, to be forgiven over and over and over again. It, it gets no better than that, to be forgiven. You're a son, you've been adopted into the home. The Father has taken you in. This leads to our third truth, Christians have a vibrant relationship with the Father. Third truth. Christians have a vibrant relationship with the Father. We're looking at the last little part of 15 here for this third truth. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons. And then this. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic term. And it signals the deepest possible affection and closeness. It is not a child sort of rudimentarily saying, hello, how are you? In a kind of robotic way. No, 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 no. It is the total opposite of that. This term in the Aramaic is, is that which a child cries out when a beloved father comes back in the house after being away for work or something like this, and the child loves the father so much and just runs to the father and hugs that dad as tightly as those little arms can hug. I am so blessed at this point in my life to have the aforementioned three children, two girls and a boy, and uh, I'm no perfect father, but I get to experience this sometimes when I come home, even just from a day of work. Uh, and and I get squeezed, you know, with that very intense little squeeze. And you know, as a dad and you're tired and you got a lot on your mind, you're trying to walk in, you can kind of think, yeah, thank you for the squeeze. That's one of the sweetest moments of life. That's their moment that Paul's putting into words. Except it's way better. It goes way up. It's not an earthly father. it's It's not a father who has his good moments and his rough moments. This is a perfect, Heavenly Father. This is God the Father. This is the one who adopts us into his home. The, the, the picture here, weaved throughout Romans 8, 12-17, is that the Son dies for us on the cross and washes our sins away, all the sins of God's people. And then, in time and space in our existence, God sends the Spirit to us, and the Spirit gives us faith opens our eyes to the wonder and miracle of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And when the Spirit comes into our heart and regenerates us and, and thus gives us faith, we are adopted. We are in no personal contact with the Father. The picture here is that we are formally adopted. We're received into the Father's family. And then we run to God the Father, and we wrap our arms around his leg, so to speak, and we cry out in love. We love God the Father. This is what Christ's death and resurrection makes possible. This is what the Spirit living in us enables. Do you understand? Okay, I'm, I'm being pretty theological Uh, you know, kind of par for the course around Grace Community Church, right? This means that you have, as a Christian, a loving relationship with the Heavenly Father at all times. And that means practically, this isn't like, oh yeah, nine years ago, I cried out, Abba, Father, in a sort of half-hearted shout. And affection and closeness, Abba, Father, all the time. This is a cry of joy. It's not like a a rigorous duty you have to perform. You have this Father. You have the only truly good heavenly Father there is. That's what this means. Think about what other scriptures teach us about the character of God, about the character of the Father. If you would, turn very quickly to Luke 15. This is the parable of the prodigal son. Luke 15, verses 17 to 24. So you've got this wicked young man raised by a loving father who squanders everything he was given. I mean, just thankless, foolish, heartless, unwise. May connect, sadly, what you as fathers or mothers have experienced. There is a wildness in the human heart such that even if there is an imperfect but a good father and mother, there can be a very strong instinct to reject that run from it, squander what you have, choose the ways of darkness. We know this is true in a sinful world. That's what happens in this parable, in this story. The son chooses the way of death over the way of life. But look at what takes place, what starts taking place in verse 17. When he, the wayward son, came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. He's lying amidst pigs. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be convinced. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off. His father saw him. And felt compassion. And ran. And embraced him. And kissed him. And the son said to him, you can almost hear the surprise, the shock in the son, his voice. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The glory of the word of God is without comparison. What stands out here is the heart of the father. Did you see that? The father could easily hold this wicked son to account and tally up all the terrible things he's done and ask him, what exactly have you wasted a mine? What did you do with that? What did you do with that blessing? Oh, it's gone now? Okay, no, you can come in. You can come in. But man, you messed it up. And I got a score to settle with you if you're coming back into this house. Is that the father? Is that his character? The father feels compassion. The father Runs, embraces his son, and kisses him. Not the good son, the wicked son. Brothers and sisters, behold the character of God the Father. No member of the Trinity is more attacked today than God the Father. Uh, This is in part because God the Father shows real anger and wrath to sinners, as we heard about in the sermon. And so people will argue to you, young evangelicals who are reading books of deconstructionists will be learning from these very clever, funny, appealing authors that is, it is a terrible aspect of God the Father that He hates evil and judges sin. It is such a terrible aspect of God the Father's character that young evangelicals should leave churches that teach such a doctrine, that preach the wrath of God. That is the height of the hatred and the evil that flows all throughout the Christian church. And if you think this is these are arguments that are far, far outside of this group or this church, they're not. Deacon's happening all around us. It's probably the hottest trend among young evangelicals today. And at the very burning center is an attack on God the Father. But the biblical God hates evil. Absolutely. He would not be a God worth following if he didn't. But the biblical God loves sinners, adopts the wicked who repent, calls a celebration, holds a feast, not for worthy sons, for the wicked one. That's the character of God. That's the heart of God the Father. So we need to recover a right understanding from the Bible, not first and foremost from logic or philosophy. We need to recover first and foremost a right understanding of God the Father from Scripture. Scripture is the only sure word in the cosmos. With general revelation, special revelation gives us the very knowledge of God. Scripture has what we need to know about God the Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father. And Scripture, like Romans 8, teaches us that the biblical Father is a wonderful Father. It can be tempting for some who have had a rough background, a fractured relationship with their earthly Father, to read that onto God the Father. I hear this every time I speak on this. People come up to me afterward and tell me that, and I get it. I was blessed with a godly father, and so I I didn't sin, but I didn't have to process a breakdown of a relationship. But I want you to know, whatever the case is with your earthly father, you don't take that and project it onto God the Father. You let that be cleansed by the biblical truth of a perfect heavenly father. Fourth truth, and finally, we're almost done here. I have a hard out at 12.30. Fourth truth. We are heirs of all that is God's. We are heirs of all that is God's. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Spirit, here again, teaches you, brings to memory, helps you not forget that you are a child of God. Special private revelation, this comes through the knowledge that the Spirit brings back to your mind from the Scripture, the truth of the Word of God, that you, by God's grace, love God, and you are living for God's glory, not your own. The Spirit regularly ministers that truth to all Christians. That's what verse 16 is teaching us. And this means that you are a child of God, and if a child, then an heir. As I have said, you have every blessing from God spiritually. You lack no good thing. You and I feel like we lack many good things. We want so much and, and there are things in this life that it is not wrong to desire. It's not wrong to desire a spouse or to desire godly children or a, a job. You really, But fundamentally, you have to reorient your heart and your mind. And you have to remind yourself, I'm an heir. I'm an heir. I'm inheriting eternal life. Heaven is becoming a small thing, even to the church. Well, yeah, I'm going to heaven. But, wait, 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 wait. Let's turn that frown upside down there, (laughs) friend. It's This is challenging. These are real challenges, and yet I am heaven-bound. I will live forever with God in the new heavens and new earth. That does not resolve every difficulty you face in earthly terms, but it does lift our eyes to the hills. It lifts our eyes to God. And we remember here at the end, last truth, that there is a condition at the very end. Provided, Paul writes, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We must suffer as believers in order to be glorified. You don't want to suffer, and I don't want to suffer. But the way of Christ is the way of the cross. The cross... Meant suffering. We do not have to atone for our sins. Praise God. Christ has done all the work. This isn't Roman Catholicism. We don't contribute any bit. One drop to the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. Absolutely not. And yet, when we are saved, through faith in the crucified and resurrected Christ, a cross is placed on our back. Which means we never leave it behind. In this life, we always carry it. We are always marked as a Christian, people around us dislike us, not for our own personality or whatever, because it's always a sparkling personality, but no, (laughs) just because you're a Christian, people just learning that despise you for that. People watching you pray as a family at the restaurant or with your friends at the restaurant immediately in their heart don't like you because you're identifying as a Christian, all of that and so much more is suffering. And so many in the modern evangelical church think they're not supposed to suffer. They think if you and I are suffering, it's because we're losing our grip on nice Christianity, which we all should be practicing. Just what does Christianity boil down to? For so many modern evangelicals, just be nice. Just be liked. Well, look, we are trying to bear the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, to 23 All the time, with all people we can. But fundamentally, the Bible doesn't say if you suffer, you're an idiot. You shouldn't have. The Bible says the only way you get to inherit everlasting life is if you suffer for righteousness' sake. So, we need to close. We as Christians are adopted into the Father's house. We are loved with the deepest love there is. But we need to always mark That true Christianity is suffering Christianity. But mark this as well. Suffering Christianity is soon to be glorified Christianity. A martyr in the Middle East right now, kneeling to be slain for the name of Christ, is soon to be glorified. A couple battling despair after losing a child is soon to be glorified. A church fighting attacks from wolves and devils at every turn, soon to be glorified. So the challenge to you and me, as heirs, as Christians, as sons in the sun, is to know we are adopted, to live for Christ's glory, and to suffer in order to be glorified. Let me pray, and we are done. Father God, help us to live this out. We've put a lot on the table. These are this is a this is a strong call. This is a high cost Christianity that the Apostle Paul has mapped out for us. But it is a glorious Christianity. We want this Christianity. We, We want to inherit the kingdom. You have called us to the table, and you have slid the paper across it, and we inherit everything in Christ. We get all your forgiveness, all your mercy, all your grace all your love. Father, you are a good father. You are not an evil father. The deconstructionists lie. They lie to us all. The devil lies to us all. You are a good father. Help us to cry, Abba, Father, continually loving you, treasuring you, and drawing near to you in the Son, by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.